Hello, everybody, and welcome to Beyond a Reasonable Poor podcast. Uh, my name is Dylan Carpenter, and to the left of me, I have Zach. Zach Landers. Thank you very much, Zach, for joining me uh, on this podcast. This is a new podcast, technically our second episode. We had our first episode go live uh, yesterday on Spotify, and it will soon be on all of the other podcast places that you can think of. Um, and it is about Pappy Gate. Uh, if you're familiar with that, I won't say any more because that's a whole different episode. But today, uh, the reason we are here, uh, the first part of our show, uh, you can see right in front of us is this gorgeous bottle of Baker's 13. So it's a uh, 2023 release of Baker's Bourbon out of uh, James B. Beam Distilling Company. And uh, after that, we are going to get into probably one of the most current controversial cases, uh, one of the most controversial cases, uh, which is the murder of Teresa Halbach. Um, yeah. You got it. Oh, I, I looked like you were going to say I'll, something. No, I'll only ruin the introduction if I say <laughs> anything. But uh, yeah, here we are. So uh, thank you all for joining in with us today. Uh, we are streaming live during this. Um, so uh, we might uh, get a con comment or two that we'll answer during the live stream. Uh, but for the most part, uh, thank you for joining us today on this this podcast that we're doing. So guess we'll we'll get right into this. Um, so Baker's 13. Um, this is a 2023 release from the James B. Beam Distilling Company. Um, it is actually the second release of Baker's 13. Did you realize that? I did not realize that. When was the first? The first one uh, came out in 2019, actually, which is when Baker's small batch went to Baker's single barrel. So they had a special limited limited release for Baker's 13 during that uh, and then changed Baker's small batch over into Baker's single barrel. Uh, a little bit more about the James B. Beam uh, Distilling Company. It actually is one of the most um, best-selling bourbons in the world. I mean, I think Jim Beam is kind of ubiquitous with um, bourbon. You know, if you've if you've heard anything about whiskey or bourbon, you've heard of uh, Jim Beam. Um, you know, they're in uh, movies and everything all around, but um, Jim Beam has definitely quite a, uh, a very uh, impressive vertical, you know, including brands such as, um, of course, Baker's, uh, Booker's Bourbon, um, Knob Creek is one of them. Uh, and there are so many expressions of just the base Jim Beam product that I'm not going to be able to uh, tell you all of them at the moment. When I was over in Europe, uh, my family and I went over to uh, Paris, France and rome and italy and the only bourbon i could find was jim beam so it is a global 
definitely a global company. I'm one of the most iconic bourbons, I think, uh, in in uh, in production now. So um, today we're going to be talking more about Baker Beam, who was the grand nephew of James B. Beam, of who uh, Jim Beam is is named for. Um, but uh, you know. It, Jim Beam wasn't founded by James Beam. It was actually founded in 1795 by Jacob Beam. Um, he sold his first barrel of corn whiskey as America was still very young. So 1795, I mean, if you think of the, uh, you know, 1776 as the ubiquitous uh, birth time of America, just a few 20 short years after, 30 short years after um, Jim Beam or Jacob Beam rather is selling his first barrel of whiskey. Um, so, uh, they are doing well. And then of course, Pro prohibition hit, um, and then Jim Beam was forced to shut down for a while. Uh, but after, uh, the repeal, uh, Jim Beam got going again. Uh, of course they were called something different at this time. I'm not going to mention that name because, uh, we have a trivia question at the end of this segment that we're going to give away some slips, some swag. So, uh, think about that, what they were called at this time. But after pro after repeal, uh, 120 days after, they were able to get going again. And that was mostly in part due to uh, James B. Beam, was, who was running the distillery at that time, who got it up and going. Um, so again, he's he's the guy who rebuilt the, distri uh, the distillery after Prohibition. Um, now, of course, James Beam is a global uh, global brand selling all over under uh, ownership of Beam Suntory. Um, I know a lot of Suntory products uh, kind of, in my mind, um, that says to me Japanese whiskey. There's a lot of uh, Hibiki, I think, is one of those Japanese whiskey brands that uh, is owned by Beam Suntory. Of course, they have a lot of other brands in their profile, but um, you know they're they're definitely global, making whiskey all over. Japanese whiskey, American bourbon, uh, like you said, Jim Beam has distribution everywhere. So uh, a lot of that quality and commitment uh, was actually in part due to Baker Beam, who Baker's is um, named after. So he joined the distillery in the 1950s. Uh, which was challenging time for bourbon. You know, it was kind of thought of as the working man's spirit, uh, you know, 50s and, of course, into the 70s and 80s. Um, you get into clear spirits like vodka and um, and that who were, you know, looking for the Vogue spirits in that, in that time. Bourbon was kind of thought of as the working man's spirit, like I said. Um, he, Baker really modernized the distillery with uh, innovations and distillations and aging. And um, he actually introduced Baker's uh, small batch bourbon at that time in 1990. Um, so it was kind of favored among some of these enthusiasts. Um, uh, Baker's became a seven-year-old single barrel product in 2019, uh, which is when, like I said, the first Baker's 13-year limited release was released. Uh, this is, of course, the second release in 2023. Um, and, uh, yeah, he, he continued to balance tradition with innovation to keep the brand relevant, but we have been letting, uh, this sit a little bit before we started this stream. Uh, we've shown amazing restraint. You are oh, from staring at it. Yeah. It's right in front of us. Don't worry. We're about to sip it. I'm going to tell you a little bit more specifically about this bottle, but then we'll, uh, we'll try our first, uh, try our first tasting. So just, just sit with me here. 
Um, but we've been letting this rest. Uh, it's been about 15 minutes or so. The good rule of thumb is one minute for every year of age is when you're supposed to let a bourbon rest. So uh, a little longer than 13 minutes has been sitting because I've been talking a lot while Zek is looking at this pour. Uh, MSRP on this bottle is about $129. Um, comes in at 107 proof, which in my personal opinion is kind of kind of a sweet spot. Yeah, that I found for bourbon. That's a nice proof point. Yeah. I have um, tried the higher proofs. I'm a big fan of the higher proof bourbon. Uh, but just anything between, you know, around 110, I feel like is a really good sweet spot for bourbon. Uh, the mash bill on this is 77% corn, 13% rye, 10% malted barley. Uh, and it comes off the still at uh, 125 proof. So um, versus Knob Creek, Knob Creek, which is another bean product, it comes off the still at about 130. So uh, without any further ado, let's let's get into this. And, let's uh, do it. Yeah. So just right off the note, I'm just noticing a nice... It's like a dark amber color. You're looking at it. You can you can definitely see the age in this. Do you have any thoughts on the nose of that? It's a little sweet. I can smell some definite vanilla. Mm -hmm. What are you getting, Dylan? Very classic nose you can it, you can kind of the ethanol is a little bit there not as hot as some of the ones that i've tasted yeah definitely some some vanilla a little bit of like some kind of fruit like a light light fruit i don't want to i don't want to go as far as to say like peach but it's a sweet fruit That's a really good bourbon. Yeah. Yeah, on the palate, um definitely getting definitely getting those uh, you know, more of a vanilla uh, if you're looking at the sweet, you know, more vanilla, maybe a little caramel. I'm smelling my microphone. There's a there's a nut taste to it too. Definitely. It has that like a pecan. Yeah. It has that uh distinct like not really peanut, but kind of, and this sounds more, this sounds less appetizing than what I'm describing as, but like a peanut skin almost, not like the actual peanut. Like a little saltiness yeah. to it. Yeah. I'm with you. Wow. It's really good bourbon. Yeah. Maybe a I'm little citrus too. That is really good. I I did cheat. I had um, I had taken a sip of this before just to you know pop the cork and let it air out a little bit. Right. And uh, yeah, my my first uh, my second tasting of this is matching my first tasting, which is it's really delicious. It's really good. So, do you have uh, like a ranking that you would give this? What like. Oh. That's what's really a scale? Hard. Do you have like a scale? I know we've talked about this. I would definitely buy it. Yeah, definitely buy it. So I guess an asterisk to that is, you know, at $130 MSRP, is that you see it on the shelf and you buy it? Is there some consideration there? Um, I'd pay a little more. 
You'd pay not, a little more. Not a lot more, but okay. I'd pay a little more. So if you you walked in, and it's not a it's not a whiskey museum, but you walked in and they're they're proud of their Baker's thirteen, and that's why it's there, right? You you'd pay a little bit more than MSRP for this. Yeah. I think I think it's priced for me, it's priced pretty well. I don't know. I feel like I overpaid a little bit for this, maybe. Really? Yeah, that's my opinion. Well, I can say this. I've had a lot of different expressions of bookers. Mm-hmm. And bookers, I've paid about a hundred bucks almost every single time, eighty to a hundred. And I'm pretty sure that's better than any Booker's expression I've ever had really? like quite a lot. You think so? Yeah, that's I mean, where I'm coming from. I'm I'm putting it right in line with um the bookers that I have open rush. So twenty twenty two oh three maybe is the the numbers on that. And I kind of like it's got a lot of deeper richer chocolate notes in that bookers and it's a little bit uh, the it's a little bit thicker in the mouthfeel um than this than this one is to me so Mm. i i would probably rank that a little i would pick that bookers up before i'd pick this one up if they were sitting next to each other on the shelf all things considered bookers 89.99 baker's 13 129.99 i i think i'd go for the uh for the bookers in that instance Hmm. Not to say that this is delicious. Uh, you know, I'm I'm kind of uh, splitting hairs with really great bourbons, uh, first of all. But uh, I'm I'm happy with the purchase. Yeah, it's I, great bourbon. I'm definitely not going to say, "Hey, I'm Zach, happy to buy the home. rest off." Of right. It, I'm not. I won't do that. I won't do that. But all right. Uh, so that gets into. I teased a little bit something at the beginning of the episode. I have some Maker's Mark swag here. So if you're a Maker's Mark ambassador, uh, you know that they give out uh, Christmas presents every year, you know, different things. I've gotten socks. I've gotten a de- deck of cards. Uh, here we have um, a set of earmuffs, I believe, uh, that could either be used for a cat or maybe like your bottle of, of Maker's uh, around the holiday to kind of decorate your shelf. We've got a scarf again either for cat or bottle it has makers 46 on it some really cool festive designs um also a sweater bottle sweater cat sweater whatever you want to use uh and this um maybe you have a naked cat yeah right that really really gets cold in the winter there you go perfect uh hopefully it's not too itchy for the cat but uh, we've got an ornament. Also, if you take off the little hangy thing, could double as a uh, a coaster. And then in here is a puzzle. So if you put it all together, you can look up picture of these online of what they look like all together. But it's the uh, the Maker's Campus. So we have a puzzle. So all this can be yours if you answer me these questions too. So the first question is, what was the name of the distillery that James B. Beam now is when it was opened. So when it was founded, what did Jacob Beam call the distillery? It's question number one. Question number two, who is the current master distiller at James B. Beam Distilling Company? So answer both of those questions. You can put it in a comment. Without Google. Without Google. Come on, honor system guys. Don't use Google. 
put it in a comment, send it to reasonablepoor at gmail.com. Uh, the first correct answer for both of those questions uh, will get this prize pack. So I know I know a few of you are listening. I see you all the time at tastings and stuff like that. I'll hand it to you. But uh, if we get somebody listening to this podcast inside the lower 48 United States, I will uh, ship it to you. So we'll, you know, do a comment. If you get it right, I'll reach out and we'll figure out how to get all of these great things. What was that uh, email? One more time, Dylan. Reasonablepoor at gmail.com is our is our email. You can also send any future episode requests. uh, If you have requests for bourbon that you'd like us to taste or whiskey, we're not limiting it to bourbon. We are, uh, we're, we're sticking within whiskey, but um, you know, I'd like to do some scotch, some Japanese whiskey, some, some crazier things uh, eventually, but we're, we're starting out with bourbon. I think that's what Zek and I, uh, I think Zek cut his teeth on scotch if I'm not mistaken yeah when i was like in college yeah but i'm not a connoisseur not a connoisseur of scott so we would uh we like bourbon we've tasted a lot of bourbon um we'd like to branch out a little bit so we're not going to just stick solely with with bourbon on this podcast so if you're a scotch person stick with us we'll we'll get a scotch in here and we'll review it um but uh all that being said i think we're to the uh kind of the main event as it were so zek why don't you why don't you tell us what we're in for here so today we're going to be talking about the murder of Teresa Halbach, which took place up in Wisconsin. And a lot of people who get into true crime started out with this particular story through a Netflix docuseries called Making a Murderer. I am familiar with that. Now, Making a Murderer, uh, I believe it aired in 2015. Mm-hmm. Does that sound right? right? And it kind of gave you a snapshot of some of the facts and inner workings of the murder of Teresa Halbach. And it's essentially uh, led to a lot of controversy because there are a lot of people out there that think that Stephen Avery, who was convicted of the murder of Teresa Halbach, is actually innocent. And there are a lot of people out there that think he's definitely guilty. And uh, along with that, uh, is his nephew, Brendan Dassey, who was also convicted of the murder of Teresa Halbach and uh, also received a life sentence in prison. And his nephew, I believe, was 16 at the time, uh, was tried as an adult. Uh, and someone can fact check me on that, but I believe he was still technically a juvenile. But certain crimes, uh, and I don't know exactly how Wisconsin works, but I know in Indiana, certain crimes a juvenile committing any particular crime could be waived into adult into like an adult. I want to go through just a brief timeline yeah. of the case. And to understand this case, you kind of have to know a little bit about prior to uh, the missing and ultimate, the missing report of Teresa Halbach and ultimately uh, finding her remains, which is that Stephen Avery was put in prison back in the eighties for a crime he did not commit. And the only reason that I want to talk about that a little bit, and many of you have probably seen the docuseries or know something about it is just to understand kind of um, what was going on at the time that Stephen had a lawsuit against local government when uh, Teresa Halbach went missing. So in the eighties, he was convicted of a rape that DNA evidence later proved that he did not do it. 
and he was in prison for approximately 15 years um, and was eventually out. Uh, or I'm sorry, 18 years. And so he went in in 1985, roughly, and got out in 2003. So for 18 years, he was in prison for a crime he did not commit. And after getting out, you know, this is America, Dylan. So what does he do? He sues. And he sues local government. And rightfully so. And during that lawsuit, while it was pending in 2005, in October, a 25-year-old photographer named Teresa Halbach has an appointment with Stephen to take pictures of a van that was there on the Avery property. And uh, she was working for Auto Trader magazine. Uh, the day after Teresa took these photographs, um, it just so happens that there was legislation in the works that was a part of the Avery task force. Basically, after he was exonerated, the legislature thought it'd be a good idea to rework some of these post-conviction uh, laws. And so it just so happens that a day after she was likely murdered, <laughs> the legislature was able to pass this, uh, essentially this Avery bill, I think is what they were calling it. Now, Teresa wasn't reported missing right away. And there's some context to that. And some of this is speculation. Part of this case that makes it really difficult to talk about now is there's so much stuff out there on the internet that it can't all be true. There, I mean, there are so many different theories and people have made up evidence and said, well, this person said X, Y, and Z when in fact they didn't, or they'll say, you know, they'll completely ignore that there were people saying certain things. So it's really difficult to get everything in a row correct. But so everything that I'm going to talk about, I've tried to vet out as absolute fact, can't dispute it. And we all agree on it. So I'm I'm going to interrupt here before you get on a roll here. Can you just, um, for some people who might not know you, can you explain why you might be more qualified, I guess, to kind of talk about this case in the way that we are going to be discussing it? Because I think that's kind of a difference between how we've heard this case laid out before. You know, of course, it's been filmmakers, podcasters. uh, uh, You know, of course, we're podcasters, too. But what um, can you tell us your unique experience that might lend a different perspective to this story? Sure. Well, I'm a licensed attorney in the state of Indiana, and I've worked both criminal defense and criminal prosecution. I've been involved in criminal investigations as well as investigations for the purpose of defending someone accused of crime. Uh, And I'll tell you this. I can point out that one of the makers of Making a Murderer for the Netflix series was also an attorney, uh, which is interesting. Um, But I I do have some unique experiences that others wouldn't uh, that I can bring to the table and hope I hope to just kind of bring some more context to some of the things that you may have seen in Making a Murderer. Um, I'll tell you everything that I've looked at in addition to making a murderer. So I've watched both seasons of making a murderer. I have watched, there's a docu-series or it's actually a documentary on YouTube about false convictions that was centered around the Brendan Dassey case. And that was put on, I'm not sure exactly who produced it, but it basically followed the Northwestern legal clinic who represented him in that appeal. I've watched all of that. I have read Ken Kratz's book, Avery, Uh, Ken Kratz was the prosecutor who prosecuted Stephen Avery, one of them anyway. He was the primary. Uh, There were a couple of other prosecutors that helped him. 
and then I've also read Illusion of Justice, which is uh, Jerry Buting's book. Jerry Buting was one of the defense attorneys that represented Stephen Avery. And I'm not sure if Dean Strang ever read it, wrote a book. I wouldn't be shocked if he did, but I haven't read it. I'm not aware of one. Um, but if you know of one, please comment. I'm happy to check that out and read that one also. So moving forward, uh, Teresa Halbach is not reported as a missing person until November 3rd, 2005. So that's about three, four days, depending on how you're counting, after she had been at Stephen Avery's uh, house to take a picture of that vehicle. And as we go, I'm just going to kind of give my opinion. I think the reason that she wasn't reported missing right away is likely she strikes me based on her family and friends, the interviews with them about her. She strikes me as kind of a quote unquote free spirit kind of person. Mm -hmm. And so for her to just take off for a couple of days doesn't seem out of the realm of ordinary. Okay. That probably was something that, you know, happened from time to time. You got to remember this is 2005. I don't even think texting was a thing. If it was, it was like track phone charged by the minute. Yeah. Right. And I, you know, if, if she would have taken off on a spontaneous road trip or whatever, she probably wouldn't have access to instant messenger, which would have been a thing back then. Right. So I don't think that anyone really thought much of it when she didn't show up to, there was apparently a party that night, Yeah. a Halloween party. She didn't show up to that. And I think they were like, ah, it's Teresa, you know, whatever. There wasn't the expectation of constant communication that there is now. Right. So moving forward, um, she is uh, reported as a missing person. And, and throughout this time, there are some statements made by Stephen Avery that I think are interesting. Um, and they caught my attention because whether I was representing this guy or prosecuting him, I'm going to pay attention to these. On October 31st, um, Stephen goes up to, and I believe it's a group of three. Two of them are his brothers. One of them is one of his brother's brother-in-law. Okay. okay? Yeah. Chuck Avery and Earl Avery are there. And then there is a brother-in-law. And he walks up to them and Chuck asks Stephen, has that girl shown up yet to take the photo? And, she, and Stephen said, no, she never showed up. On November 3rd, this is after now she's been reported as a missing person. Mm -hmm. He talks to Deputy uh, Sergeant Colburn of the Manitowoc Sheriff's Department. And he tells her, well, she showed up. I watched her take pictures from my house. I didn't talk to her. And then so, she left. So he's changing his story right there. He, that's All a different like, statement. Yeah. Then on November 4th, he is now interviewed by Detective Remaker and Link. And Detective Remaker is also a detective or an officer for the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Office. The same office that he has a lawsuit pending against, by the way. Yeah. And his story to them this time was, I talked to her. She came to my door. She came into my house. I paid her. Then she left. Hmm. November 5th he talks to Detective O'Neill. This is a different detective not associated with Manitowoc County. I can't remember the county. I don't think it's Calumet, um, but a different county. He talks to a different detective and he tells this detective, I met her outside. She took photos. I talked to her. I paid her. She gave me an auto trader magazine. Then she left. Hmm. 
So all of those are vastly different when you think about it. One is she never showed up. Okay. The other one is she showed up and I saw her, but I didn't talk to her. Now the third statement is I talked to her, but not only did I talk to her, she was in my house. And then the last one was I talked to her, but she stayed outside and she gave me something and then left. Hmm. The details of these are just sporadically yeah. different. Immediately. That's just all over the place. Right. So I know a lot of people have this thought that law enforcement had tunnel vision to Stephen Avery. Um, and I'm going to tell you right now that if we have a witness, especially a witness who might be a suspect, who's giving different statements each time you talk to him. Yeah. We're going to focus on that person. Yeah, absolutely. You're going to focus on that person because you need to understand why are they changing their statement? That doesn't necessarily mean he murdered her or that he hurt her in any way. Right. But you have to understand now, why is he changing his statement? What is, so what is the reason for that? Yeah. And some innocent explanation might be, well, he went to prison for 18 years and he's terrified, scared to death yeah. to talk to the police. But part, you know, it's hard for me to buy that one because he's had so much interaction with law enforcement prior. Mm -hmm. He knows probably better than most that you don't have to talk to the police. Right. And he can just walk away. Yeah. So I don't know. Take that with a grain of salt. Moving forward. On November 5th, volunteer searchers are granted permission to search the Avery auto salvage yard. Now I want to back up to October 31st. So we understand why are people wanting to search Avery's lot? Okay. On October 31st, Teresa had a number of appointments for auto trader that afternoon. There are two in particular that law enforcement and I believe everyone else kind of focused on after two sometime after two, either two or two 15 PM. She had an appointment with a guy named George Zipperer. Okay. Mr. Zipperer lived about 10 miles away from Avery salvage. So it's right on the way. A lot of people think that that may have been where she died instead of Avery. Okay. From Zipperer, the theory goes that she went from Zipper's property to Avery's property, and that's where she died. Okay. So those are the two places that law enforcement are essentially starting, right? Mm -hmm. Because those are the last two places she was scheduled to be. Right. And now she's missing. And at this point, they don't know that she's dead. She's just missing. So they talk to George Zipperer, and they don't get a lot out of that. They talk to Stephen Avery several times, and they talk to George Zipperer more than once as well. And I don't know exactly what the content, if any of you do, if any of you know what the content of those conversations were, and you have a credible source for that, I would love to look at that. But I do know that they talked to George Zipperer more than once. Okay. So they go to Teresa Hall, or excuse me, Stephen Avery's property, and they're talking to him. And I think a lot of why they focused on him is because his story keeps changing. Mm -hmm. It was, she didn't show up. Now she did show up. He might've talked to her. He might not talk to her. Right. So now volunteers are searching on his property and they all know that they're looking for a Toyota RAV4 because that's what Teresa drove. Right. And I believe it's on this date. There is a lady by the name of Pam Sturm who is somehow related to Teresa Halbach. So that's kind of weird. And she finds um, the RAV4, Teresa's RAV4, 
within in a matter of like 30 minutes hmm. and that's a lot of red that raises a lot of red yeah. flags for people she's just right here yeah right because if you look at if you look at avery salvage it's massive right and there are tons of vehicles yeah and where she finds it is kind of stowed away off the side of one of the paths and it looks like there's some like half way attempt to cover it up like with mm. branches and wood and all sorts of stuff on top of it but she finds it and she calls and she talks to i believe it's detective weigert of calumet county so that detective weiger is now involved in the investigation because calumet county made the correct decision of we need to get out of this mm -hmm. and let some other outside agency look at this now that we know Stephen avery is a, sus a suspect yeah. because they have a lawsuit pending against right. him right so um they go, they find the RAV4, and I want to talk about the vehicle for a while because they find all sorts of stuff on the vehicle. And really, in my mind, it's the vehicle and then also Teresa's remains that really do it uh, for me in terms of believing that Stephen Avery did this crime. So in the RAV4, we have blood that looks like it's been transferred from hair and it's Teresa's blood, and that's in the back, like the uh, hatch area mm -hmm. of the RAV4, okay? You have blood where the key goes, like a kind of like a shape. You can Google it, but if you look at, you know, if you Google Stephen Avery blood in RAV4, you'll probably find it. There's some blood stain right above where the key goes because it's an old-fashioned key. They didn't have start buttons back then, right? And... There was some evidence when Stephen Avery was interviewed and ultimately arrested. He had a cut on his right hand on his pointer finger. Dylan, you found that. Can you put that up possibly? Sure can. While he's doing that, I'll keep talking. So he had a cut on his finger. And so right where you would be putting that key. There it is. Okay. So there's the blood. Right. So I want to talk about that for a second, because in season two of Making a Murderer, um, Kathleen Zellner, his now attorney for post-conviction relief, habeas corpus, whatever you want to call it, and I can talk about what all that means. Um, she ran a bunch of tests in season two of Making a Murderer where she put a bunch of blood on, it looks like, either her intern or associate's hand. Mm -hmm. because she bought a raw four <laughs> the okay. same year. Yeah. And Kathleen Zellner has a really great track record of getting people uh, out of prison. So yeah. she's the person to hire. If I you remember know. she was pretty much the star of uh, season, season two. two. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to talk about this blood stain real quick. So basically if you put the key in and you turn it, your hand is not going to touch that spot. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So she makes a big deal about that. And that yeah. is a big deal. That's important to know. But my theory is as to how Stephen Avery, if he has an open wound and he's bleeding, right, or anyone for that matter, if they're getting into a car that is not theirs and it's nighttime and they're trying to move it and start it, they don't know where the heck that key goes. Yeah, We've all experienced that, I'm sure, any of us who are over the age of 25 who have had keys and not start buttons have experienced getting into someone else's car and you're like jabbing around because if so i'm looking at this if i didn't know what car this was and i'm looking for like the standard place that a key would go 
it's not on the steering column, which is what it looks like for the RAV4. It's kind of right there. Right. And if, you know, if I were to try to get in this car blind and put my key somewhere right. that I thought it would be, that's where I would. And you'd also maybe hold the key like this, right? And move yeah. forward right. looking for the hole. And you're kind probably going to yeah. touch something, right? Yeah. That stops you. So I don't think. It's kind of like looking for a cup holder. You know, you kind of. Right. Put it down and you maybe circle around and right. then you find it and it goes in. Right? We should probably give a disclaimer now that I'm a rambler. <laughs> and <laughs> so this is why we have a podcast. If you have not seen Making a Murderer or read any of the books by the attorneys that work the case or have watched now, there's a new series that's just out on the Daily Wire Plus called Convicting a Murderer um, or seen anything related to this case. It's going to be really hard for you to follow what we're talking about because I'm, I like to stop and talk about things as we go. And so it's probably sounded really convoluted and confusing if you don't know what the case is. So I would encourage you to just stop right now, go watch the docu-series or don't stop right now. <laughs> and then come back and uh, listen to our commentary. So at any rate, I think this is an important fact. The other real important fact from the car is that they found skin cells, Stephen Avery's skin cells on the hood latch. And I don't know if you can find a picture of that because it won't be visible to the naked eye, I don't think. But um, I, one of the theories of the defense is that law enforcement planted a lot of this forensic evidence, DNA, blood, because if Stephen Avery didn't do this, how is his blood ending up in the RAV4? Mm -hmm. How are his skin cells ending up on the hood latch, right? Well, a lot of people like to make the suggestion that um, the police planted it, but I don't know how you would plant skin cells. That doesn't make any sense to me. So from there, they find the RAV4. Um, I believe at some point they get a search warrant for Stephen Avery's house. And they, I'm not sure exactly if that's based on the um, discovery of the vehicle, but I can tell you that if you find the missing person's vehicle on someone's property, that's probably going to give you probable cause to get into their house and yeah. start looking for stuff. So that would be my bet. If they didn't already have a search warrant for his house and everyone's house there in that area, then they probably just got it right there. Yeah. So, so quickly tell me about probable cause. So probable cause, there are a couple different definitions that I've heard. Um, and I'm not so sure it's strictly legally defined. I can tell you that you have to have evidence. If you're looking for, for the purpose of investigating a crime, you have to have some reliable evidence that uh, a crime is occurring or evidence of a crime could be found wherever it is that you'd like to search. Um, the most classic example that I can give is say um, you walk up to someone's house. So that's totally legitimate. An officer can walk up to your front door. Mm -hmm. They probably can't walk to your backyard. Right. Unless that's where you would expect guests to come to visit your house. Uh, but they can walk up to your door and they can knock on your door. And let's say you open the door and now they smell marijuana coming out. Okay, that is evidence of a crime that is either occurring right now or has occurred. And they can then go ask a judge for a warrant to come back and search your house. Gotcha. So the odor Same of marijuana like is the easiest traffic, traffic stop. 
Do what? Same thing with a traffic stop. Yeah, although yeah. with the traffic stop, you don't need to get a search warrant because to search a vehicle, um, the I believe it's the United States Supreme Court decided that um, you don't need a search warrant for a vehicle. It's an exception because a vehicle can move. And but, uh, both both um, illustrative of a problem. Absolutely. Cause, yeah, yeah, you still need probable yeah. cause. To Regardless search of the, the search warrant. Yeah, 100%. So they get a search warrant. From there, they find a firearm in Stephen Avery's house. Uh, I believe it was a, a rifle of some sort. And they arrest him for felon in possession of a firearm. Mm -hmm. And so that's what they initially arrest him for. Um, after his arrest, he settles his lawsuit with the county. So he did file a complaint for damages in the amount of $36 million. And I think that the math on that or the justification on that is based on $2 million a year. He was in prison for 18 years. I don't know exactly if that's what the math was based on, but that's where my brain went when I saw they're asking for 36 million. That makes sense. Yeah. So uh, he settles it though for $400,000. So a lot less than what he was claiming. And he got out of the 400,000, he got 240,000. So after lawyers fees and expenses and things like that, he got $240,000. Now, according to Jerry Buting in his book, The Illusion of Justice, that is the amount of money that he paid Dean Strang and Jerry Buting to represent him. The way that they broke it up was Jerry Buting got $100,000. Dean Strang got $120,000, I think as he's the lead. Mm -hmm. um, and then they had $20,000 for expenses. Makes sense. From there, um, and around the time actually that they were discussing the representation of Stephen Avery, that was around the time that they had interviewed Brendan Dassey. And a lot of people have right. seen this interview. It's been uh, the point for a lot of controversy. And the general gist of that interview, there are two sides to take. One is that law enforcement put words in Brendan's mouth and made him testify or made him answer questions rather in a very specific way. And the other side of that is Brendan was interviewed multiple times and um, the only thing you saw in Making a Murderer was a short snippet of one of the interviews. So I would encourage you to go watch the other interviews yourself yeah. and make a, de a determination yourself on whether or not he was led or coaxed. There was some influence on him. I would agree with that as there is in any interview or interrogation for a major crime. Um, me personally, when I watch the interview in its entirety, not just the snippets that you see in making a murderer, I don't see that the undue influence that a lot of people, uh, claim is there. Um, however, I'm, you know, I could be wrong. I think that the, and you're more familiar with the process too, kind of going back to what we already talked about. Right. You're, well, you've seen interviews before and this might've been a lot of people's first look into how uh you know police conduct interviews right and it might seem more aggressive than you would expect right one thing i'll comment on is wisconsin apparently didn't have the same sort of procedural rule that we have here in indiana so here in indiana if you're going to 
discuss or um, interrogate a child, then you have to give them what's called meaningful consultation, which means they have to have time in private to discuss with their parent or guardian or a trusted adult, or it could be their attorney. Um, You have to give them time to talk about whether or not they want to make a statement. And it seems to me, and when you interview the juvenile, that person, it seems to me that Wisconsin did not have that rule in place at the time. Uh, I don't know if they have that uh, rule like that in place now, uh, but that's something that's a little different than Indiana. Yeah. Um, what I will say though is some of the details that Brendan Dassey gives, I don't know how he would know those things without um, actually having experienced it. And I think um, someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but based on, they found a lot of bones on Stephen Avery's property around mm-hmm. in and around his burn pit. And, I was going to say, I remember barrel, right? a big thing about the fire pit was right. So whoever did this, this Teresa Hallbach burned her and they were able to find enough muscular tissue to say that this is definitely Teresa Hallbach through forensic testing. And there are these, the person that um, evaluated a lot of these bones or one of the people that did is what's known as a forensic anthropologist. And so part of their job is to collect and make certain um, observations of these bones that are collected. And I don't know if it was a medical examiner or this same forensic anthropologist that came up with this, um, this thought, but based on the way that the skull uh, bones had been fractured, I believe that's how the law enforcement knew that she had been shot in the head. And so based on putting it back together and understanding that. And when they asked Brendan Dassey, you know, who shot her in the head? Well, he did. Stephen did. Okay. Where at? In the garage. And it's like the very next day or that day that they find a bullet in the garage that they didn't know about before. And when they tested this bullet, that bullet contained Teresa Hallbach's DNA. And it also matched up with the rifle that they found in Stephen Avery's bedroom. Hmm. So pretty compelling evidence. Now let's talk. What other evidence did they find in Stephen Avery's bedroom? Because I seem to think you, you mentioned the gun. There was other evidence in his bedroom, right? There was a key that was found and I'll get to that later. Okay. Um, that's a big, that's a big point of controversy as well. Um, because they didn't find the key right away. It took several searches of the bedroom before the key was found. And, um, I don't totally understand the ins and outs of that, to be honest. Okay. So we're not there on the timeline just yet. Uh, we might, I'm jumping around a little bit because (laughs) Brendan, that's all right. Brendan was interrogated in like March of 06. Okay. And something tells me that they haven't found the key yet, but I can't remember exactly. Gotcha. Um, at any rate, they find this bullet. This bullet is tested, and this is a subject. This is also uh, part of the controversy. Go figure. Is the defense files a motion when they find out about this bullet? They file a motion to be present at any forensic testing of this bullet. Is my understanding, and. The judge denied it, and the state makes an argument that is logical and compelling in saying that, well, 
if you are present for the forensic DNA testing of this bullet, the risk of contamination is much higher because you're there in the room and you mm-hmm. could introduce your DNA into the, into the, either the control or even the main um, testing. That makes sense. Right. Object. So the judge grants the objection or, or sustains the objection and denies the defense's motion. And what's funny is then uh, the forensic analyst, her name is Sherry Colhane, she uses this particular item or object, the forensic testing of it, as a training. <laughs> she had more people in the room. So anyway. there are more people in the room. Wow. My, my bet is, and based on my experience, you don't have like a, uh, at least I don't have, I've never had a relationship with a forensic examiner where I can just like call them up on the phone or text them. But I do have that kind of relationship with like my detectives, right? Sure. And, and other law enforcement officers. Sure. And my bet, and I could be wrong, my bet is, is that Sherry Colhane had no idea that that was even being litigated with the um, whether or not more people could be in the room. And the test that they conducted on this bullet, and I might screw this up because I'm not a forensic scientist, but my loose understanding of it is that they had to do what's called like a wash test. Mm -hmm. So there's such a small amount of DNA, like blood, for example, has a lot of DNA. Like you get a drop of blood, that's a ton of DNA that you can find, right? That's why blood is usually so important in these cases. But a bullet that has no visible signs of blood or anything else, um, you don't know where to swab it. Yeah. Right. So what they did for the bullet was they did what's called a wash test. And my understanding is you drop the bullet in like a solution or something like that. And then it, that solution takes all the DNA off of the bullet all the way around it. And then you take the bullet out and then you test the solution to find what DNA was on the bullet. Right. Makes sense. I've never heard of that test before. Um, so that has never come up in a case I've ever had. So my, my bet is it's kind of rare to do that. Cause the general way that you do that is you take like a Q-tip or something, you swab the blood and then you mix it in a solution. So this is just kind of the opposite. You're just putting the, the object in the solution and right. Yeah. Still the same way of testing. It's just a different way of going about it. Right. You're washing it instead of swabbing it. Yeah. Yeah. And so what's, what I think happened probably was because this test doesn't get done a lot, they decided this would be a good thing to train people on. Oh and yeah. So, this would be a perfect way to, to show people. Yeah. Cause it's come up now so I can train other people on how to do this. Well, while she was doing this training, <laughs> Sherry Colhane had introduced her own DNA. <laughs> and my understanding was she introduced her own DNA only on the control, not on the oh. actual bullet. But still messed up the protocol. And once you do a wash test, you can't redo it. It Because all of the material. It's it's such a small amount of DNA that you're pulling off that it's all all used up. So what got screwed up was the control. And there was a request then internally with this lab to excuse, (laughs) basically allow a deviation from protocol for this particular item. And, uh, so the defense like was and understandably, so was very upset about this result 
because they really wanted to be present. They were told they couldn't because of contamination. And then the literal forensic uh, analyst contaminates, <laughs> <laughs> which is also really funny because Sherry Colhane, I was listening to another podcast earlier this week about this case. And there are a lot of people out there that think Stephen Avery is innocent. And I'm not one of those people. I think he, I think he did it. I think he's guilty. Um, but I, I would welcome any reasonable debate about that. At any rate, uh, a, there was this podcast I was listening to and you can tell kind of where these particular hosts were. They were on the side of the fence that mm -hmm. Stephen Avery is actually innocent. He didn't do this. And, uh, they were talking about Sherry Colhane and how they didn't really believe her testimony at trial because if you watch making a murderer, all the clips of Sherry Colhane, she's coughing. Yeah. And I, they were like, well, that must be a nervous tick and she must be lying, which I thought was really funny um, because it's Wisconsin, I think, in March. Oh, it's, it's like early prime March. flu season. And so, yeah, it's, yeah, it's really cold. cold. Yeah. It's Wisconsin. And so maybe she's coughing a lot because she's yeah. sick or her Seasonal immune system allergies. is fighting yeah. something off. <laughs> And I just thought it was funny because she also contaminated the sample by coughing. <laughs> <laughs> Which go figure. Yeah. Uh, another another big point in making a murderer. We'll just hit all the highlights now because yeah. we're talking about them. It's 1995. Maybe she's just an avid smoker. 2005, you mean? Not, yeah, 2005. <laughs> Thank maybe you. She's a smoker. Yeah. yeah. Still. Who knows? Still. So another big part of making a murder, uh, what was called the red letter day for the defense by Jerry Buting in the docuseries is the blood vial. So they find this blood vial, um, that, so their, their theory, part of their theory of defense was that the police planted evidence mm -hmm. that they tried to frame. They got tunnel vision on Stephen Avery that they, they tried to frame him because of this $36 million lawsuit against the county and uh one of the ways they must have done it was they had a blood vial because when he was his dna was taken before to exonerate him the first time um his blood was taken into a vial oh, that was right. in evidence okay. stored somewhere yeah and they must have had access to it and they must have taken it and they planted his blood in the raw four and wherever else they you know found it that was convenient the blood vial that also contained skin cells <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good point. So at any rate, um, they find this, this blood vial and they look and they look at the top and they see there's a hole on the top. Hmm. So that was a big part of the documentary yep. is, Oh, look, we know exactly what happened now. Someone stuck a needle in there, pulled some blood out, went and planted it. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, the nurse that pulled his blood, uh, initially for the testing, the way that that particular vial is used, it's like a vacuum or, or something like that. Oh, okay. And the way it works is when you hook up to the arm to take the blood, you then put a needle into this vial through mm. that purple cap. So the vial the, wasn't sealed. And it, it wasn't a seal. That was part of the procedure. Yeah, it gets vacuum process. sealed when the needle's pulled out. Yeah. And gotcha. so that hole doesn't make a difference for in terms of it. They won't pour out. but. Mm. That, that hole was supposed to be there. He's a, it's that kind of... I didn't know. That. They didn't mention that. No, they the, didn't uh, mention that, did in they? The, in, in the, the documentary. The other thing... Conveniently. They the other thing they didn't totally mention in the documentary, although 
they they hit on it that the FBI came up with a new test to test what's called EDTA, which is the preservative found in blood. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't preserve blood with this preservative, what happens to it? It dries up and turns brown and it does what blood's supposed to do coagulates and right so Stephen avery's blood in this vial is still red and liquid Hmm. because it has a preservative in it called edta and um because the theory of the defense was oh they must have planted this blood the one of the prosecutors his name is norm gone very sharp guy uh he did all like the forensic evidence or a lot of Mm -hmm. it for this trial did a lot of preparation for that because some prosecutors are just really good at that area. And that was this guy. Hmm. And so he knew, you know what we should do? We should get a test together that can test for EDTA on samples that we found because then we can just show the jury this wasn't planted. It couldn't have been planted. Right. Right. Unless we literally took it from Stephen Avery right then and went and planted it, right? <laughs> yeah. And so they get this test together, and the FBI says they can have it done in so many months, but they're gearing up for trial. Yeah. This is around the time that they find out about this blood tube and all this stuff. And um, so Norm is talking to Jerry Buting in the defense about, well, how about we continue the trial so we can have the result of this test? Let's mm-hmm. get the result of this test and know. Whether or not continue the time that's in layman's terms, they want to pause the trial, they want to push it out a continuance, okay, more time so we can do more testing. And I'm gonna venture to guess Wisconsin is similar to Indiana that if the state or the government wants more time, it's a lot more difficult for us to ask for more time because there are speedy trial rights, right? That the accused enjoys, and so they have to agree to it or sign off on it, Hmm. Um, otherwise. They might get released from jail, which is released from custody, or they might even in Indiana, if you wait too long and it's not caused by um, the defense, it's caused by the state or even the court, then you might be subject to a motion to dismiss because it's dragged on too long. Because it's a constitutional. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's also a procedural rule in Indiana. So it's not only constitutional, it's also a rule that our court has adopted. And if I'm the defense and I'm claiming, hey, uh, you took my defendant's blood from a vial that has a preservative and the prosecution comes to you and says, hey, we're going to test that for the preservative. And you genuinely believe that's what happened. Sure. So Jerry Buting in his book, I didn't know this before I read his book. Jerry Buting says, heck no. Oh, really? Hell no. We don't want you to have more time to test this. We're going to trial. Hmm. It's like, why do you think that is? Yeah. Right? Because my position is, if you're on the side of honesty, and you you know that, oh, they must have planted that. Instead, that's not what's going on here, in my, in my opinion. Yeah. They want to use that as a theory of defense, and they want to argue it. To sow reasonable To doubt. try to sow reasonable yeah. doubt. And if you test it, and it comes back not favorable to them, can't they use lose it. that argument. Yeah, can't use it. And so in the docuseries, they make it seem like the state springs this on them in the mm-hmm. middle of trial. Oh, the FBI has this test, and they tested it, and now mm-hmm. they have the results. And it's like they knew about it months before. Yeah. They knew that testing, they didn't get the results well, there's, until trial. But there's evidence rules, and there's you know discovery, and there's disclosure. You have to be basically yeah. on the same page as the def- you know. And it, it seems to me, based on the way that Jerry Buting writes about it, writes about this particular interaction, is that Norm Gone is the same kind of prosecutor that 
um, that I've dealt with as defense and that yeah. I that I am as a prosecutor when I've prosecuted cases is that very honest, very upfront saying, I think we should do this because it'll get us to the truth. Yeah. Because what if, you know, I, I'm thinking, you know, Norm Gaughan was probably thinking, what if there is EDTA in this right. blood? I want to know that. Because yeah, I, if you the know, coal's coming from within the house, what room's it in? Yeah. Right. Prosecutors don't want to put innocent people yeah. in jail. That's right. not what our goal is. We have no, you know, our goal is to try to serve justice as much as possible. And that means if someone committed a crime, we prove it and we make sure that they did it. Yeah. And that's what forensic testing is for. So I, I thought that was interesting when I read Jerry Buting's book that they don't want to wait around right. <laughs> for this test to be done. They would, uh, they would rather just roll with what they got and uh, hope for the best, right? Exactly. So moving forward, Stephen Avery uh, is later tried, obviously. Mm -hmm. He has his two attorneys, and there's a lot of stuff left out. And one of the things that bothers me about making a murderer is if you read the trial transcripts and really... Um, I won't bore you with uh, which witnesses I'm talking about. I would encourage you to go watch Convicting a Murderer because they do a good job of showing how this was done. Um, but they literally edited testimony in the documentary. Hmm. So to me, that's not a documentary anymore. Yeah. I mean, you're not documenting it. You are changing it to pursue a narrative i mean as a so what do you mean edited like because as a filmmaker i would say okay this person went on and on and this isn't really mm -hmm. related right. or you know this is that's not what i mean okay i mean changed answers gotcha like yeah. if i um that's illegal if you're on a game show what if you can't <laughs> you didn't know that about game shows no. so there's always a disclaimer at the end of the game shows that uh you know this program was edited for time but the outcome of the game show you know like survivor even not uh -huh. even just family feud if they edit it to change the outcome of what actually happened they can, i mean they can't do that so survivor the way it ends is the way it ends whoever wins is who wins right. they can't like you know do some fancy editing to it's be like, like oh, wwe well. no no so like can... there's actually a game show thing that you sign on well anyway tangent but so that's illegal in game I mean, shows but apparently for not not for uh, courtroom documentaries. I yeah, and I don't know. I mean, I yeah. don't know if there's a, a law against it or not. It seems pretty fraudulent to me. Yeah. Um, especially for the people that it's about. Yeah. Um, when you're talking about law enforcement officers who you know served their communities in a particular way for that's a long their time. whole career. They're it based on their credibility within their community. Right. And when you edit their answers, their yeah. in court testimony. To make it look like they have done something nefarious. Yeah. There's got, there's something, I mean, there's something wrong with that, regardless of whether you can yeah. sue for it. There is something and wrong with that. You're basing that on, so you read the actual transcripts and then compared them with the testimony and there were stark. I, I can tell you one instance yeah. um, off the top of my head. Cause those are all, those are all public documents right. at this point. Yeah. hundred percent. So um, one instance is deputy Colburn, he had made a call about the RAV4 and I think we'll get into this um, some other time because I, I'm waiting to see some of the information put out there by convicting a murderer about mm. this particular 
instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, they and that's ongoing currently. Yeah, yeah, they haven't released all their episodes, and I kind of want to know what they have to say about that yeah. before I comment on it. Um, this will be a part two, everybody. There will be a part two. There <laughs> to be continued. Be more yeah. than two parts. This is a big case. Right now, I'm just kind of giving the, the cliff notes of yeah. the things that I've already determined are um, interesting topics. But Andy Colburn, uh, at one point in time, makes a call about the RAV4 um, while Teresa was missing. He calls and says, hey, that license plate was, you know, X, Y, and Z, right? Mm-hmm. And the oh, dispatcher, this was a big gotcha. I yeah, remember this part. The dispatcher says, yeah, that's right. And he's like, it's a 97 Toyota or whatever the yeah. year was. She's like, yep, that's correct. Okay, thanks. And making a murderer makes it seem like he's looking at the raw four when he's calling that in. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Jerry Buting's testimony in the court or his cross-examination of Colburn in the courtroom, he says something to the effect of, well, don't you think that looks suspicious? And then it pans to Colburn and Colburn answers the question. Yes. Hmm. That's not real. That's totally fabricated. Really? The question was, don't you think that looks suspicious? Ken Kratz then says the word objection and says that calls for speculation. It's argumentative. And it was sustained. That question was never answered. Hmm. That's just, it's a flat out lie. Wow. In the docuseries. That's the one off the top of my head yeah. that stands out. That's big. Yeah. So Because I know that was their big, you know, they probably ended an episode on that, right? Like, Yeah. And I don't know all the, my recollection after reading about this, and again, this case has been so convoluted and disrupted, discombobulated yeah. over the years of like Reddit threads and different right. things. And I don't really know what's real and what's not anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested to watch convicting a murderer because they did the work of actually interviewing the people that were involved. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I would find that their statements are going to be more credible than some Reddit thread of, you know, some conjectural theory or whatever. Sure. And so um, th- what I remember, though, about that call with the Rob four was someone asked Andy Colburn, hey, what what's that vehicle that we're looking for? Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, it's a 97 Toyota. And they're like, well, what's the license plate number that we're looking for? And he's like, well, I think it's this, but let me double check. Mm. And he calls into dispatch. Hey, that missing person, it's this, um, right? So he can give people who are on the lookout yeah. accurate information. So it, he wasn't standing there having just found it. No. Yeah. It, that's. I mean, that's what was, I recollect. He was looking the, for it and calling to make sure, hey, this is what we're looking for, right? Right. Hmm. 100%. Yeah. Do you that's have a, a little... picture of that blood vial, by the way, that uh, we can talk yeah. about? Yeah. This Baker's is really delicious. I was going to say, how how has that opened up to you? Because that's really good. I've taken a couple sips since, and it's, I mean, it is really good. It's really good. Well, he's looking for that. We're going to talk about the trial a little bit. So one thing that I've tried to do today, Dylan, for today's purposes, is not get into, like, the character of any of these people involved. Uh, because it's surrounded by bad characters. <laughs> so here's that. Here's that blood file. All right. So that hole at the top there, my understanding, and maybe someone listening uh, works in the medical field and 
can either uh, confirm or deny that the hole is created because the needle, um, there's a needle that fills up that vial with the blood coming from a tube and needle from the arm. So, or it might be a, even a smaller apparatus that you just have like a double-sided needle that you stick into their arm and then mm-hmm. it fills up the vial with blood. Oh, just, yeah, that makes sense. I don't, if, have you ever given blood or gotten blood taken out for a test at the hospital? Because I've seen it happen. I, I have, uh, but I don't know that I've really, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of needles. So I usually <laughs> look, look away from what's happening, uh, because I just, uh, yeah, I can't, I can't stand the thought of all that. So right. no, I haven't, I haven't specifically paid attention to the mechanism. Um, right. Okay. But what you're so, describing is making sense. Yeah. Because, so I, I look at it every time cause I find it fascinating. Oh, but that can't they do that. stick me, stick me with the needle and then like the tubes right there and it just fills up right there. Yeah. Like they don't put it into a syringe and then put it into a tube. Right. It's like the tubes right there. Yeah. So that's my understanding of that. That makes sense. So it's not like an open vial that they then cap and seal. Right. It's just part of the process and right. whatever. Because that lid looks pretty thick right there if you're looking at it. So maybe yeah. whatever back pressure causes it to seal up on the inside once it's removed. Or like there's some kind of a mechanism inside that, you know, like fix a flat or something. Right. Okay, <laughs> so um, Stephen Avery decides to go to trial by jury, which is his right. He is, I think it was like a six-week trial. Is there a seven-week trial? Oh, excuse me, five-week trial. There's the answer. Um, so he goes to trial for five weeks, and he is ultimately convicted of murder. Uh, and he gets life without the possibility of parole. And since then, he has filed appeals. He's filed, um, I think he's filed a habeas petition. Uh, so I'll talk about that a little bit and post-conviction sure. relief. So when someone's convicted uh, and sentenced, they then start serving their sentence. You have what's called direct appeals, which means you can appeal the conviction. Um, and what you're asking the Court of Appeals to do is look back at the trial court and you're asking them to determine that the trial court got something wrong. And Mm -hmm. usually the appeals that are successful is that you show the trial court made a ruling that was adverse to you uh, that violates either your constitutional uh, protections or violates some rule of law, Mm -hmm. right? They will not reweigh the facts. So if you ask them, in Stephen Avery's case, if his appeal was only, we want you to reconsider this evidence and reweigh whether or not uh, this all this evidence was planted on me mm-hmm. versus whether or not I actually did this, they're not going to do that. Even if they have evidence to show, like new evidence to show that that evidence so, was false? So new evidence is a different situation in, a, in an okay. appeal, in a direct appeal, and I'll get okay. there. In a direct appeal, you're only, they're bound to the trial court record. So the record that was produced at trial, mm-hmm. as well as any hearings that may have happened prior to trial about this trial. So it's looking for something off about the trial itself, not happened. about the, it's about the trial, not about the case. 
Yeah, I suppose that's one way you could yeah. look at it. If it's new evidence, that's something different, and I'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. But a court of appeals is going to look at the record that's been produced, and they're going to determine whether or not there is sufficiency of evidence. The way that they look for sufficiency is, is there evidence for each element of the crime? And they're not going to reweigh it. So all they're looking for is, you know, the fact that his gun matched up to um, the bullet that was found, yeah. had her DNA on it, the RAV4 was on his property, his blood was in the RAV4, um, he had called her there mm-hmm. to take pictures of the van, and we'll come back to that, don't let me forget about that, how he called her there, because okay. that's interesting too. Because um, a, a big question, and again, you might be getting to this, a big question is motive. Sure. Like what, like why, Right. you know, but motive is not an element of the crime typically. Hmm. See, cause you know, and this might be, you know, uh, the NCIS watcher in me or, you know, wherever right. I might have gotten the three elements of murder are, uh, motive opportunity. And, um, Oh, there's like a big three that I feel like is a myth murder, <laughs> yeah. uh, motive opportunity. And, uh, I don't know, murder weapon. Maybe. So in Indiana, Indiana has like the, I think is the easiest um, definition of murder. And most other states are going to be very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Indiana, all you have to show is that, you know, this person, so person A, knowingly or intentionally killed person B. Hmm. That's it. So what it comes down to a lot of the time is if you're defending someone, you're going to defend them on ID. You can't prove it was person A, okay? Or um, person A's conduct didn't actually kill them. There was some other circumstance, some other part of it that actually killed them, right? So, yeah, Like a manslaughter kind of thing. Where the- well... That's we're getting into technicalities. Yeah. <laughs> That's a little different. We'll get, we'll get back to Stephen Avery and Teresa sure. Hallbuck. The best way to explain though what murder is in Indiana, you don't have to show premeditation necessarily. You don't okay. have to show that they planned this or that they had a motive to do it beforehand. All you have to show is that they uh, intended their conduct, meaning they had the conscious objective yeah. to kill the person, or they were engaging in conduct that they knew or should have known had a high probability of Hmm. resulting in the death of that other person. Hmm. And so the best way to describe that is you develop the intent to kill in the amount of time it takes you to swat at a mosquito. Hmm. Right? So if a mosquito's on your neck and you swat at like you're intending to kill that mosquito. It was a crime of passion. (laughs) (laughs) It was he was biting me. I just that's what and so in Indiana crime of passion is a voluntary manslaughter. Interesting. So if you're acting under sudden heat, that's when you like come home and you find your wife in bed with another guy. Sure. You shoot like the Isley brothers, you know. Got it. Gotcha. So are are there degrees in Indiana? Is that a thing? Because I know Indiana. Okay. And that's the difference between Indiana is like there's different levels of you know you thought of it quickly it was a heat of passion you premeditated it like you you had a plan a week ago is like first degree murder right I think um, yeah I I think that's the difference in some other states uh, between Mm -hmm. like first degree second degree is you intended it but you didn't plan it yeah and premeditated is a higher level but we don't have that in Indiana Gotcha. if there is premeditation 
that might be something that could be considered for an aggravator sometimes if you're looking to file like a death penalty or life without parole. Sure. Um, it's definitely something to argue to a judge at sentencing as an aggravator if you premeditated yeah. it. Like, to get the highest. Because they work sentence. within a, you know. Yeah, the range in Indiana is 45 to 65. Gotcha. For murder. So, anyway, to yeah. uh, Stephen Avery. I'm just genuinely interested in some of this stuff That's as it right. comes up. So, I hope uh, they you are all, too. yeah, hopefully you all are Otherwise too. They're going to stop watching. Uh, yeah, I know we have a couple of watchers currently now. Uh, if you have any questions that jump up like that, like, please feel free. We're watching comments. Uh, even if uh, you're watching this and it's not, or you're listening, you know, wherever you're consuming this media, uh, if you have questions um either comment now if you're watching live that's a the perk to watching us live or uh if you're listening afterwards and you have questions come up or you know but what about this um reasonable poor at gmail.com is a good way to send us comments um also comment on wherever you're wherever you're watching or listening i know uh you know facebook youtube twitch i'll have comment streams um we're also on spotify google podcast amazon podcast apple podcasts um so go ahead and uh and and comment your questions there and go ahead and rate us if you like us too because that really helps us out but uh that ends the commercial break for ourselves uh <laughs> since i uh since i got on a roll there but uh yeah if you have comments ask humble. yeah if you have comments ask so um i wanted to talk about that vehicle well Sure. I was on a tangent, though, about appeals and post-conviction and habeas. So yeah. really quick, you have direct appeals that just looks at the trial court record. Once that's that's usually denied, it's very rare that an appeal comes back and gets reversed. And then you have to retry the case. Um, or in some circumstances, the reversal means you're done. Double jeopardy is attached. Um, once you're done with your direct appeals... Then you can file what's called post-conviction relief. And in some cases you can file, uh, well, in, in all cases you can file a, a habeas corpus petition. The difference between the two of those is post-conviction relief is what Indiana calls it. Um, I think that Wisconsin calls it something very similar, if not the exact same thing. But it's more of a civil case. It's no yeah. longer criminal. And that you file it in then the essentially the same trial court that you were tried in and that's where you bring up your new evidence. If you have okay. new evidence, you gotcha. bring it up in a post conviction relief petition and you have another crack at developing some more stuff. Usually what gets pled in post conviction relief also is, um, ineffective assistance of counsel. So they try to claim that their defense attorneys didn't do them a good enough job and that they were actually ineffective, fell below the standard of what you're guaranteed by the sixth amendment of the constitution. Habeas corpus is very, very similar to post-conviction, but it's federal instead of state. So you file it in a district court having jurisdiction, so in that area. Um, when, If any of you guys paid attention to Brendan Dassey, when his conviction was essentially being overturned, it was being overturned on habeas corpus, a district court uh, in the Seventh Circuit, I believe it is, and I think it's the same circuit that Indiana is on it shares. Um, so there's a district court in Wisconsin that basically said, the judge said his, um, confession, his interrogation was no good. And therefore his conviction should be overturned. 
Hmm. The state of Wisconsin, by the attorney general there in Wisconsin, filed to appeal that, went to the Court of Appeals in the Seventh Circuit, which is in Chicago. It's the same circuit that Indiana, Illinois, and Wisconsin all use for federal issues. They heard the case to a three-judge panel. That panel agreed with the district court and said, yeah, that Hmm. interrogation was wrong. Um, It went beyond the bounds of uh, what is legal, and therefore his conviction should be overturned. The state of Wisconsin then requested what's called an en banc review, which is spelled E-N-B-A-N-C. Say Francais. Do what? Say Francais. Indeed. (laughs) So (laughs) they asked for an en banc review. En banc review means... It's French. Yeah, oui, oui. And that means they wanted the whole Court of Appeals to review that decision. So it wasn't just a three-judge panel at that point. It was the other, I don't know how many of them there are. Sure. Over ten, I think. Or maybe it was just nine. It doesn't matter. They They wanted better odds. Yeah, they hear it, and uh, they decide that the interrogation was fine by a majority. And so that's what happened with the Brendan Dassey thing. That's why he's still not out of prison. Gotcha. Um, From there, uh, you can then appeal it to the United States Supreme Court. And if they want to hear it. So the U.S. Supreme Court does not have to take all cases. They can reject a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Back to that auto trader thing that I was talking about earlier. So um, Stephen Avery was romantically involved with this lady by the name of Jody Stachowski. Um, In August of 2005... She went to jail to serve a seven-month sentence for an OWI or DUI, okay? While she was in jail, the moment she went to jail, Stephen Avery's calls to AutoTrader for them to come out and look at vehicles to photo and put into their magazine, like, ramped way up. So he went to from... Not calling Auto Trader too much to calling Auto Trader all the time, and specifically asking for that quote unquote that girl who was out here last time, hmm. which would have been Teresa. Um, on October thirty first, though, when he called to have Teresa come out to photograph the van, he put it under his sister's name, Barb Yonda, hmm. instead of his own name. And another thing that he did was he star 67 Teresa's number a couple times. And for those of us who are millennials may not remember what star 67 means. And as an elder millennial, (laughs) as an elder millennial, I do remember. Can you even still do that? I don't even know. I don't know. We should try it. We should try it. But what it does is it blocks your number. So if you're calling someone, it will block who it's coming from. So, Everyone who had caller ID back in the day would know who's calling them unless the person calling star 67 first, right? So he star 67 Teresa's number a couple of times. Then after she would have been done and likely gone, he then calls her phone with just his regular number, no star 67. Mm -hmm. And this has been referred to as the alibi call, Mm -hmm. meaning... He was likely trying to set up that, you know, position that he was taking at first, which is she never showed up. Right. So he's in his mind. He's like, if I call again, 
maybe it'll look like I'm like, hey, where are you? Where'd, where'd you go? Why, right. why didn't you show up? Right. Did he leave a voicemail or anything like that? Not that I know no. of. Not that I know of. So I think it's interesting that he really ramped up the amount of auto trader calls that um, at, at the time, right? Mm-hmm. And there's this weird phone call between him and Jody that occurred, and I don't know the exact date, but it's a jail call. So either he was in custody or she was in custody at the time. But she's like freaking out on him and screaming and saying she wouldn't F you. That's why you had to kill her, isn't it? Because mm. she wouldn't F you. And so I'm like, well, what have their conversations been like <laughs> the huh. last yeah, you know, few months? <laughs> Um, give me one second here. The last thing I wanted to talk about, uh, is a little bit about the prosecutor, Ken Kratz. So he was from Calumet County and he was brought in as a special prosecutor for this case. And there were some things he did that I know a lot of people have problems with. And uh, I'm here to say that, yeah, me too. So one of the things that um, Ken Kratz did throughout the process, specifically in pretrial, is Ken Kratz would make all these. Yeah, that's him. To refresh your memory, if, uh, yeah. if you don't know the name, this is the guy that he, we're talking about here. Yeah, and he would do a lot of pre-trial media press releases and was putting it out in the news, like very specific details about things that they had been discovering through witnesses. He put out... Um, a statement about Brendan Dassey's interrogation and interview and some of the details that Brendan had provided. And there are a lot of ethical rules on prosecutors and attorneys in general about making public comments. Mm-hmm. and Which we are keenly aware of having a prosecutor oh, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> a practicing yeah. attorney yeah. So, uh, on here. So <laughs> we've so, talked a lot about that. It's like, Hey, we should talk about that. You go, Oh, let's not talk about that one specifically. <laughs> so what the rules say in a nutshell, at least in Indiana are, you know, we, we have to make public comment sometimes to necessary to inform the public. Mm-hmm. Like we have to inform the public of what's going on. We can't hide like what we're doing because we are a public office. I was going to say it's an elected office right. in most, at least in most places that I'm aware of. Right. And so you do have to make public comments. Mm-hmm. Um, what you have you to have be, a constituency to serve. Right. What you really have to be careful with though, is making comments about details that aren't publicly available. Mm-hmm. So, Probable cause affidavits are typically publicly available unless sealed. So if any of you are familiar with the Delphi murders, um, that case, they have charged someone for mm-hmm. the Delphi murders. That person right now is in pretrial. Um, and that case for the longest time was sealed. I don't know if it still is, but it was like impossible to find out 
Hmm. beyond a redacted probable cause affidavit, which really didn't provide a whole lot of information. It was hard to find out exactly what was going on uh, in that case and what had happened throughout the years of investigation. Hmm. Um, Something Ken Kratz does that I think is unfortunate, and I'm going to comment on why I think he did it, um, which doesn't make it any better, uh, but... He like provides a lot of details about what had happened or had allegedly happened that he, I, in my mind, I think he knew or should have known he was never going to be able to prove. So hmm. some of the things like that Brendan Dassey said in his interview, and this is part of the reason why there are a lot of people who think Brendan was coached or, or coerced in saying these things is because some of the things he says sound ridiculous mm-hmm. like there's no way that happened so one of the things he says is that Teresa was her throat was slit and that she was stabbed in the stomach and all this stuff and if that were the case and she was stabbed in the stomach and her throat was slit in the in Stephen Avery's bedroom why is there not any blood there would like, be pools of blood right, you would think uh, isn't like the stomach one of the most bleedingest areas to be stabbed i'm sure it's very bleeding i don't know (laughs) i don't know if that's a real thing or not but it just seems like you get stabbed in the stomach i i'm basing my knowledge off of um the documentary called pulp fiction by (laughs) documentarian uh quentin tarantino who is known for his accurate depictions of of blood So that's where I base my stomach bleeding knowledge on. But in all reality, if if you have a stabbing scene, mm-hmm. you're going to find blood. Yeah, I I would find it really hard to believe that anyone would be able to clean up that scene. Sure. To the extent where you wouldn't find any of it, um, I just don't think that's going to happen. And so when he's talking about that to the press, surely he knows by that point. We're in 06 Mm -hmm. that there was not a bloody mess of a scene in his bedroom. They didn't find any of that. That doesn't make any sense. And so I don't know what, and maybe he, he would be able to explain why, uh, why he said those things to the media. Here's my theory. My theory is, is that he knew since there was a big lawsuit pending everyone was already very aware of Stephen Avery mm-hmm. and they were very aware that I'm sure it was all over the local news right. at least at that point. And my bet is that there was some public consensus that law enforcement screwed over Stephen Avery. Yeah. And he might've been trying to undo some of that. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Some of that, uh, some of the negative press, or yeah. you know, bad well, will. Right, he's starting from way behind. Which right, you should when you're the prosecutor. I mean, your job is to prove it. Yeah. Right, um, but I think he was just trying to undo some of that stigma mm-hmm. that law enforcement screwed this guy over, and trying to show that we're not screwing him over this time. He did this. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. This time it's for real. Yeah. That. I mean, that's. So that's conjecture without Ken yeah. Kratz right here to answer. 
I would want to know his answer to that. And maybe mm-hmm. he answers it in this new docuseries because I know he gets interviewed. So, length. Ken Krantz, if you are listening right now, reasonablepoor at gmail.com. Go ahead and and have your people call other people. Yeah, um, go ahead and email us. Part two, we'll get Although you on the episode. he's a recovering alcoholic so, or a recovering Oh, addict. yeah, maybe. Uh, so, we should probably maybe do like yeah. a non-alcoholic pour oh, that day. That would be good. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting thing. <laughs> we'll think about that. Do like, what is it, like stargazer whiskey or I don't know, isn't there a... Uh, a near near whiskey out there there is there's we like should. ritual has yeah. a whiskey we should try some of that i don't know if i want to buy a bottle of it to uh, try maybe someone it, will donate a bottle yeah, of if it. anybody has because um, i don't want to buy any more of it i can tell you that <laughs> oh did you have you had some i have had some. okay well there you go <laughs> maybe if someone Spoilers. has like the leftover <laughs> bit of their bottle where they've tried it before and yeah well you mean they someone, feel generous someone probably still has most of their fifth because they tried one, <laughs> yeah. one bit of it and was like not yeah. for me <laughs> mm. dylan what questions do you have about this case well i just know that uh i have a couple written down here um so you've you've covered a lot of it but I imagine, you know, Out you kind of, order, of probably. you kind of talked about just Ken Krantz in trying to rectify maybe some of the uh, the media uh, how stigma, they viewed the case around how, what do you know talk to talk to me more about the media coverage of this case just ongoing and after like how does that affect a case um, that's in litigation and appeals. How do you deal with that as a as a prosecutor or as defense? Well, my um, my position with a lot of that as a prosecutor has been to um, I, I basically ignore it. I mean, I'm aware of it, mm-hmm. um, but. Any public comments that I ever give about a case are basically just to inform um, the public and whoever's asking me about kind of where we're at procedurally. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been asked for one time I was at a, a sentencing for a, a, a murder and I had made the comment that it was a very egregious act. Mm-hmm. And I was asked, well, what do you what do you mean by that? When you said the word, and I was asked by a reporter, what do you mean by that when you said this was a very egregious act? And I was like, well, the guy killed someone. <laughs> like, I mean, that's what I meant by that. Yeah. <laughs> we were already at sentencing, thing. so it wasn't like I was commenting on mm-hmm. what he had done or didn't do prior to him being convicted. He had already been convicted. But um, a lot of the time, if I make any comment, it's very usually very brief and it's just to inform whoever's asking usually a reporter you know we are at this is day one of trial we're trying to seat a jury uh we have this many jurors Mm -hmm. we don't say their names or anything like that but um we have this many jurors and we're in like the first inning of a you know a long ball game and then like once we get to maybe the close of evidence i'll say well we're kind of like in the seventh inning stretch and you know we're getting close to wrapping it up you know, that sort of thing. Just very factual yeah. progress reports rather than correct any kind of editorializing. I, I do know that there was a prosecutor once who got in trouble. This was in Indiana. Um, got in trouble because he made a comment. This is similar to Ken Kratz. 
in that he made a comment about a you know, an ongoing murder, and it was still pretrial, and had let the media know about some factual detail that wasn't actually going to be admissible under the rules of evidence mm. when you, you got to trial. And he got in trouble for that. Mm. Um, and so you can't say things that you know are going to you're not supposed to sway the public one way or the other. That's not your job. Um, your job is only to inform them yeah. about basically what's going on. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what I try to do. If I get asked questions, that's my commentary. Interesting. And, uh, so we talked a little bit before about the key found in the bedroom. I don't know that we zeroed back in on that. Um, right. So the key is found, <laughs> And this is not so good for um, law enforcement in that it wasn't found right away. And it was kind of tucked in. My understanding was Stephen Avery had this bedside um, cabinet or table or whatever. And there was like a little hidey hole kind of place on the back of it. Mm -hmm. And so when they're searching this bedroom, someone just so happened to shake this thing or move it. And then the key ended up on the floor. Interesting. And the the problem that people have with it is that Manitowoc County deputies were in the room when this key is found. And Manitowoc County is supposed to stay out of it. Yeah. Right? Now, this um, key was to the RAW 4. And why don't you pull up a picture of it? It had a uh, lanyard clip. So it was attached to a... Essentially, a lanyard, uh, the end of a lanyard, and something I I don't know if they mentioned this in making a murder or not, but guess where the other part of the uh, the lanyard was found? Uh, in the car. In the raw floor. Yeah. Yep. So here's something that's a little weird. They did a DNA test on that too, and they only found Stephen Avery's DNA on it. They didn't find Teresa Hallbach's DNA on it. Hmm. And the blood that we looked at earlier in the Rav Four by the keyhole was Stephen Avery's. Was Stephen Avery's blood? And they found his DNA on this key. They found his DNA on. Okay, this so that matches key. up. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. It's just a little weird. Yeah. Because of the and the amount of crevices on a key. Yeah. That they didn't find any of Teresa Hallbach's DNA. Mm. One comment I'll make on that, though. So maybe he cleaned it and then... Yeah. Conjecture again. Maybe he cleaned it and then the presence of his own DNA because he didn't he, clean he it could again. Have. He could have. That might explain that. Another another explanation... If, I mean, my car keys probably have my DNA all over them, right? Like, right. they're in my pocket all the time and, mm-hmm. you know... Well, another explanation is that... Well, first off, all they can say is that they didn't find Teresa's DNA on it. That doesn't mean Teresa's DNA is not on it. The other thing that I'll say is I don't think that Mm -hmm. they did a wash test for that. So what we talked about with the bullet in terms of taking every single bit of DNA or getting as much of it as you can out of crevices and stuff. The only reason to do... To find Teresa's DNA on the key was to prove that it was her key, but we knew that it was her key because it's her car and that car, right. that key fits the car. So they didn't need to prove that the key was linked to Teresa, right? Right. But although what I would say, the the response to that is, shouldn't you find her DNA while you're looking for his? Right. 
Right. Yeah. Why, why didn't it come up? And I don't know. I don't have an answer to that question. Honestly, the key is to me, not even all that important. I mean, there's another one of those gotcha moments. I feel like they ended an episode on, you know, and then they found the key. Yeah. I, the key is not important to me, whether or not the key was there to me is irrelevant. You found her car on the property. Mm-hmm. Her car was within, I don't know, 10 to 30 yards away from a car crusher. Mm-hmm. So another theory that the defense peddled was that, um, well, if if he was going to do this and he was going to hide her car, why didn't he crush it? Yeah. Right? He knew how to use the car crusher, which is true. But a car has to be prepped to be crushed. Mm. You can't just crush a car. You got to take like the glass and stuff out of it, probably. You got to take tires off. A motor. Probably. You got to take um, the gas tank off. Yeah. You got to drain all the oil, drain all the fluids. You got to take the radiator off. Mm. That's a long time. Sure. Yeah, Think about some labor in that. Much. Yeah. And then you got to go get a skid loader or something or a crane to load it up in there. And then you got to crush it. Mm-hmm. And Stephen Avery, the day before, on October 30th, crushed a car and mm. left it in there. Because what they would do at the Avery Salvage Yard is they would crush these cars in like sandwiches. Oh. So they would have three. Multiples. And so my my theory is that he was going to, although yeah. he ran out of time because... They got him pretty quick. Well, it was like what four people days. People were all after? looking at him pretty yeah. fast, right? I mean, it's like three days after she goes missing, she's reported. Mm-hmm. So he had like three days to go do it. I don't know if he's a particularly lazy guy or not, um, or maybe he was worried his family was going to see him yeah. messing with this. I don't know, but I do know that that would take you anywhere from half a day to a full day to mm-hmm. prep a car because you got to take all the tires off, you got to drain all the fluids. You got to take the radiator out. You got to take the gas tank out. Yeah. That's not an easy thing. And you would probably, to get the gas tank out, you'd probably need to take it to a lift. Mm-hmm. Is my bet. Yeah. You couldn't do it just it. right there. Probably the not, yard. not easily. Right. Um, another thing that a lot of, uh, that I've heard some individuals say is that um, it doesn't make sense for Avery to have done it. And it makes more sense that. Teresa was moved to Avery's after mm-hmm. being killed somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Because, Planted. Yeah, because why would... Not by cops, but by for somebody trying to... Anyone not, trying it to frame her. cops, could be anyone, yeah. right? Because why would Stephen Avery put her body into the RAV4 after killing her? Right. Because they found transfer stains She's already on the property, yeah. ...to the hatch. Yeah, like why wouldn't you just throw her in the fire? Mm-hmm. And I, I think the explanation to that is... I don't think Stephen Avery really knew what the heck he was going to do with her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, if he killed her, right? And I think he did, you know, but my bet is when you kill someone, you're probably not like so cold that you're like, oh, I know exactly what I'm going to do right. with this now. Yeah. And Stephen Avery has an IQ of about 70. <laughs> yeah. So my bet is he killed her. And then was like, well, what the hell am I going to do now? Just throw it all in a pile, put her body <laughs> in the car. I'll deal and with I it And I think he put her in the car and yeah. drove around his salvage yard and tried to figure out what the heck am I going to yeah. do? And Brendan was probably with him and he was like, what are we going to do? And they yeah. have about, you know, they both have IQs of 70 or under. Mm-hmm. So I'm not so sure that it was a quick, like, I know exactly I'm going to 
shoot her in the head and then I'm going to burn her and then I'm going to clean right. up and you know it all if that timeline is correct it all seems kind of haphazard anyway right yeah so absolutely well I think I've run out of things to say for today <laughs> there's a lot still to say I mean there is there will be a part two on this particular case um, in the meantime I hope uh, all of you guys check out some making a murderer uh, related um, articles and come back with some really good questions. You can email us in the meantime, right? It's reasonable poor, reasonable poor at gmail. Reasonable poor at gmail.com is uh, the email address you can use to submit any questions. If you have a particular bourbon that you'd like us to taste, uh, maybe it'll be on the next episode. Any cases that are really uh, digging at your mind that you want to hear kind of our unique perspective about it. Um, again, if you want to catch us live next time, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitch, and YouTube. It's all reasonable poor, facebook.com slash reasonable poor, Twitch, YouTube, etc. Uh, and then uh, pretty much anywhere podcasts are served, Spotify, Apple, Air, uh, Amazon, and Google Podcasts, we're all on there. Uh, and they will be uploaded uh, uh, later. So if you want to find our release schedule, uh, follow us on social media. And if you want to uh, listen to our podcast, follow us there. Otherwise, uh, Zach, thank you very much for your perspective. I appreciate your perspective on this. And uh, Thanks for having me, this Dylan. Is, this has been a great <laughs> work co-host. It's like, hey, I invited <laughs> you. No, it'll always be us. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I appreciate, uh, appreciate you being here. And uh, to everyone else, we'll see you next time.